Well, good evening, Hellas Church. My name is Andrew. I serve as one of the pastors here and have the privilege of leading us through our study of the scriptures tonight. One of the things we like to say in the life of our church is that a church is, is not a place. It's not a location. A church is a people. It's a people in whom God's grace finds expression. That as God's grace is poured into our lives, it expresses itself in the ways in which it is transforming us, the ways in which it is affecting us, the ways in which it is drawing us deeper and deeper and deeper into our relationship with Christ. And one of the reasons why we're talking about these new, uh, kind of a new iteration or articulation of our values in this kind of four-week mini-series is to remind ourselves of the specific and particular ways that God's grace expresses itself in our lives and in the life of our church. And so last week we talked about the table and we said we recognize that Jesus leverages ordinary moments for extraordinary purposes. And so God's grace expresses itself in our lives when we begin to live missionally in that same rhythm, just engaging in ordinary moments in an extraordinary way. So specifically, we like to turn our tables into places of grace and community and mission. And then tonight, we're going to look at a second core value with the, that's conveyed through another image, and that's the image of the towel. But before we dive into the towel and we see how this communicates the way God's grace expresses itself in the life of our church, let me voice one more prayer for us and then we will dive right in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we get to spend together over these next few moments. Would you open our hearts to receive your word and respond to it by faith in Christ. God, we love you and we thank you for loving us in Jesus' name, amen. Now, a couple years ago, there was a member of our uh, Fremont Expression who had a neighbor that he was trying to build a relationship with, and he was trying to serve in some very particular and practical ways. And he saw her one day out and about, kind of away from their homes, and he could tell she was in a kind of a grouchy mood, so he gently approached her and started a conversation asking her how she was doing. And, and that one qu- conversation, or that one question, hey, how are you doing, sincerely asked, solicited all kinds of responses from her. It was clear that she was not doing well. She was, she's an elderly woman living alone and has some physical uh, struggles that prevent her from being able to take care of her house and to keep up with all the things that are happening around her. And so she just kind of opened up and let this guy know all the ways in which she is struggling and all the things at her house that she needs to get done that she is incapable of doing. And so, so our friend said, well, uh, why don't you let me help you? I'd love to swing by. I've, I've got some experience working on homes and things in the past, and I would love to come and, and maybe fix some of the things that, that are broken and, and take care of some of those things for you. And at first, she responded, that'd be great. We'd, I'd love for you to come by and to help me out in those ways. And so the next day, uh, our friend grabbed his toolbox, went over to her house, knocked on her door. But when she opened the door, she had a completely different reaction. Rather than welcoming his service and welcoming his contribution to her household. She kind of got angry and annoyed that he was there. She knew that this guy was a Christian, that he loved Jesus, and so she kind of always read his activity as kind of agenda-driven and those types of things, and so she just kind of pushed back and said, I don't want your help. I don't need your help, and and our friend was confused because she had just said that he could come by and help out and serve around the home, and But she pushed back, she resisted, and before he could get a word out, she just slammed the door in his face and locked the door and did not respond to him anymore. And so our friend walked away sad. He was saddened by the fact that this woman who clearly had needs and she clearly needed help, but she was rejecting the service that he had come to provide. And every time I think about that interaction, I can't help but think about my own heart. And I can't help, perhaps, but think about your hearts as well. Because many times the human heart 
is too proud to receive the service that it oftentimes needs. Many times our hearts just kind of close the door on others wanting to meet our needs or to serve us in tangible, practical ways, which is often the expression not of God's grace in our lives, but an expression of pride in our lives. This is evident not only in how people may refuse help from others, but I think this is, most importantly, it's expressed in how people often refuse Jesus' help. It's how we often respond to the ways in which Jesus wants to serve us, the ways in which Jesus wants to bring healing and wholeness and restoration to our lives. And so what I want us to do tonight is I want to challenge our heart's instinct to try to put that, to, to push back against the ways in which Jesus wants to serve us. And I want us to consider how Jesus not only has served us, but how he continues to serve us today. And then I want us to see how his service of us is what really energizes our service of those around us. And so if you have your Bibles, let me ask you to grab those and turn them open to John chapter 13. I want to take you to a beautiful scene that, that illustrates and speaks to this dynamic, speaks to this dynamic of Jesus serving us and how when we are served by him, we want to serve one another. A passage that really puts the image of the towel before us in a, in a dynamic transformative kind of way. So John chapter 13, if you find your way there, we're going to start just by looking at verse, verses 1 through 3, and I'll read it out for us. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now when it was a time for supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given him everything into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. And so here's the moment. Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. He's, he's sharing the Passover meal with his disciples. And as the meal is winding down, after they have this moment at the table together, Jesus turns his attention to the disciples and he begins to teach them some very important things. And he begins to do something incredibly important for them. But what I love about the way this scene kind of unfolds and the way that it begins is that Jesus, he, he's so aware of what he has come into the world to do. His self-awareness is clear when you, when you see that he knew what his mission was. In the very beginning of verse 1, it says that he makes this note that his hour had come. Now, all throughout John's gospel, this coming hour has been anticipated. There's been moments where John has kind of dropped these seeds, uh, these breadcrumbs for us to follow all the way up to this moment where Jesus refers to a coming hour, and this hour would be a moment when Jesus would fulfill his mission. He says it earlier in John chapter 2, verse 4. He refers to this coming hour by saying, my hour has not yet come. Then in chapter 7, verse 8, Jesus refuses to go to Jerusalem, saying, my time has not yet fully come. And then later, some Jew religious leaders try to seize Jesus and force him to Jerusalem. But it's not time for him to go there yet. So we're told that no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come, meaning they did not succeed in trying to force the issue on Jesus. Then a similar thing happens in chapter 8, verse 20, where Jesus refers to a coming hour. And then when you get to chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus finally says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This hour has arrived. And when he refers to that, he's referring to the very kind of the climactic moment for why he came into the world in the first place. 
that his hour is at hand. It is time for him to fulfill his mission. And it's a pretty exciting moment in verse 23 where he says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This would, this would have gotten the energy going in the room. His disciples are sharing this meal with him, and Jesus starts talking about the hour of him for him to be glorified. Now, the disciples are pumped about this because they're part of his entourage, right? They're kind of riding on his coattails into Jerusalem. They've aligned themselves up with Jesus so that whatever's going to happen to Jesus, their believing is going to happen to them as well. And so when he makes this statement, the hour has come for me to be glorified, the disciples are excited because that means they're going to be glorified as well. And so at first, they're excited. They, they look forward to what's going to happen to Jesus because that's going to happen to them too. But then Jesus kind of throws a bucket of cold water on them. And he reminds them of the way to being glorified in the kingdom of God, kind of the path that he must follow. So he picks it up in verse 24, and he, makes this, he draws this analogy. He says, truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. He's saying, in order for me to be glorified, I must first be crucified. That to be lifted up in glory will only happen when he, after he is laid low in death. And so he's laying out a rhythm for his disciples that is sobering, a rhythm to his disciples that they do not quite understand, where he's saying, you know, the gospel moves us. In order for the gospel to move us up, it must first move us down, Right? That the way up is down in the kingdom of God. That's just the rhythm of things in God's economy. That glory comes after crucifixion. This is true of all spiritual growth and all spiritual formation in our lives. Jesus says in Luke chapter 9 verse 23 that if you're going to come after me, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. This is why there's so many calls and appeals in the New Testament for you and I to die to ourselves. Why? Because God wants to just leave us down? He wants us dead? No, it's... Because death is what leads to life in the kingdom of God. That glory comes after crucifixion. This was the rhythm of the gospel, and this is the rhythm of our own spiritual formation. That we grow to the degree we're willing to die. I know it's ironic. I know it's counterintuitive. But the way up is down. And this is what Jesus is communicating to his disciples. But they don't get it. So like earlier in, or later on in Luke's gospel... Around this same time, there's a dispute that kind of breaks out between the disciples. And they start arguing over who's going to be seated at Jesus' right hand in the kingdom. Who's going to be seated next to him on thrones and all these types of things. And Jesus kind of turns to them and he, he pulls the brakes on that conversation saying, Look, guys, don't, don't forget that I am among you as one who serves. And Jesus over and over and over again would communicate this dynamic that the way up is down, that the Son of Man came into the world not to be served by people, but to serve people. He came into the world not to be glorified apart from crucifixion. He came into the world to be crucified, which would lead to his glory. And Jesus is very much aware of this. He was very aware of his mission. This is why he says the hour has come when all of this is about to go down. But not only was Jesus aware of his mission, he's also aware of his identity. He knew exactly who he was. You heard this in the passage that was read for us a moment ago in John chapter 17. In verse 5, where we're told that where Jesus prays, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Jesus knew where he came from and he knew where he was going because he knew who he was in relation to his father. 
And I believe that it is this awareness of his identity, the fact that Jesus knew that he was the eternal son of God. This kept him on track to fulfill his mission. This is what I think provided him with the security needed to serve in such a lowly way. Because he did not see such service as something that would threaten his status as the eternal, God, as the eternal son of God. It was his identity that provided the security for Jesus to do all that he was going to do. Now, at the very beginning of his ministry, there's this moment where Jesus spends several days out in the wilderness fasting and praying. And, and there, there's a moment where Satan approaches Jesus and tempts Jesus. And in this temptation, Satan is basically trying to get Jesus to glorify himself apart from crucifixion. Satan is trying to get Jesus to say, okay, the way up is up, not down. And so he comes to Jesus when he is hungry after fasting for many days and said, hey, you have these stones on the ground. And if you are the son of God, you can turn those stones into bread. You can feed yourself. And that was one temptation that Satan gave to Jesus. But then he also said to him, if you are the son of God, if you are who you say you are, then you can go to the top of the temple and you can jump off and and ask the angels, or command the angels, rather, to come swoop in and save you before you hit the ground. Then in both of those instances, Satan was trying to tempt Jesus to seek glory apart from crucifixion. In both of those temptations, Satan was threatening Jesus' identity or calling it into question, saying, Jesus, prove yourself, glorify yourself. But in both of those temptations, Jesus resisted because he knew deep down who he was. He knew his identity. He knew his mission. He wasn't going to be di distracted or pushed out of line with what God's calling upon him was. And so you have Jesus who knew his mission. He knew his identity, who, re who resisted those temptations. He did not want to seek glory apart from the cross because had he succumbed to those temptations... Had he done what Satan was tempting him to do in the wilderness, the only person he would have been serving in that moment would be himself. And had Jesus only served himself through his life, he would not have been the savior that we desperately need. But again, Jesus did not come into the world to be served. He came into the world to serve. And the way he's going to serve is by giving his life as a ransom, as a ransom for many. And so Jesus begins to illustrate this. He drives this home beginning in verse 4 when we are told that he got up from the supper and he laid aside various things. And he takes his seat in verse 4 or he prepares himself to do some things for the disciples who are also seated around the table in this moment. It says in verse 4 that Jesus got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel and tied it around, his, around himself Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. This remarkable moment where Jesus, the Son of God, takes on the form of a servant in a literal sense and begins to move one by one to each of his disciples, washing their feet, doing the work that was only assigned to slaves and servants in the first century. This moment when Jesus takes up a towel and washes these dirty, calloused, smelly feet. Nobody in the room would have ever guessed Jesus was going to do that. No one in the room would have ever expected Jesus, the Messiah, to take up a towel and to wash their feet. They believed that that act was an act in which Jesus was stooping 
very low. But little did they know Jesus was going to stoop a lot lower. Because Jesus' service, Jesus' work in our life, it isn't confined or restricted to washing our dirty feet. But Jesus' ultimate service of our lives happens whenever he washes and he cleanses our hearts. And he brings forgiveness of sins and he brings cleansing to our lives, not in a physical sense, but in a deeply spiritual sense. You see this connection when you consider how there's some verbal cues, there's some words that kind of echo, that are found echoed in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 is a passage that's referred to as a, as a Christ hymn. Many believe that it's a passage that the early church, they kind of bounced around in the liturgy of the early church of the first century where they would sing and celebrate Jesus becoming human and taking on the form of a servant. And, and these words made its way into Paul's book of Philippians where he dropped that hymn in the middle of his writing. And, and there's a lot of verbal echoes and cues between that passage and what Jesus does in John chapter 13 that actually helps us understand better what Jesus' mission is. Check it out, beginning in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, it says, Though he, that is Jesus, within the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he got up. But made himself nothing. He laid aside the privileges of being the son of God, of dwelling with his father in heaven. He got up and he laid that aside. Taking the form of a servant, taking the form of a servant, not unlike the movement that is happening in verse 4 of chapter 13. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This humble service of Jesus that I believe is illustrated here in Jesus' activity with his disciples. And what this begins to tell us is something very, very important about the Christian life. This story of Jesus washing feet is a story that is far too often moralized. It's far too often read as a source of inspiration for how we should serve one another and how we should treat each other. But to moralize this story is to miss, is to miss the point entirely. This passage isn't one that we are supposed to moralize. This is a passage that we are to internalize. Meaning that what Jesus is doing for his disciples in this moment is what he seeks to do in our lives in every moment of our day. And when he's doing that, yes, that's going to affect the way that we serve one another. It's going to affect the way that we treat each other. But we cannot moralize the story, reading it like a fairy tale that can inspire certain virtuous activity in our lives. No, we are to read this story as one that exposes our true condition and says, hey, look, you as a human being need to be served by the Savior. And if you're living your life trying to serve the Savior without being served by the Savior, you're going to fall flat. Your spiritual life is going to flatline. You are not going to be what Jesus is calling you to be. You are not going to ultimately do what Jesus is calling you to do as people who are in his family marked by a new identity. As people who've been given a new mission to carry forth in the world. He says, no, this isn't a story that we're to moralize. This is a story that we must internalize. This is a story that we need that reminds us that it's not so much you and I learning how to serve. It's you and I learning how to be served. And that's the key to the Christian life in many ways. 
The key to the Christian life isn't you learning how to serve. The key to the Christian life is you learning how to be served by the Savior. Notice what happens. As Jesus gets up from the supper and he lays aside his clothing, he takes up a towel, he he ties it around himself, and he begins to wash the feet of his disciples. And then in verse 6, notice what happens with Peter. He came to Simon Peter who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you don't realize now, but after you will understand. And then notice Peter's response. He basically shut the door on Jesus, or he tried to shut the door on Jesus, saying, you will never wash my feet. This type of service is beneath you. But then listen to what Jesus says to him. Jesus replied, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Peter, if you don't let me do this for you, you're not going to be with me. You're not going to be united with me. You're going to have no part with me. I'm here to serve you in these kinds of ways. Now, this is one of many opportunities in John's gospel where Jesus takes a physical thing and he uses it to communicate deep spiritual realities. It happened earlier in John chapter 4 where Jesus meets a woman at the well. And as she's drawing water designed to satisfy her physical thirst, Jesus turns the conversation to say, look, I I am the spring of living water. If you drink from me, you will never be thirsty again. And he makes the connection using a physical illustration for spiritual realities. Well, Jesus is doing the same thing here. He's saying, look, if I don't cleanse you, if I don't wash you, you can have no part with me. This means that ground zero for the Christian life is you coming to the point where you recognize that you are poor in spirit, where you recognize that your heart needs cleansing, that your life needs to be acted upon by the work of Jesus. This is why you can't become a Christian apart from humility. This is why humility is required, because humility says, look, I can't clean myself up, I can't get my act together, I can't make myself right with God. Humility says I need to be made right. I need to be cleansed. I need to be saved. It puts us in a passive posture where we are being acted upon by the Savior. This is what Jesus is illustrating and communicating here with Peter. Saying we must humble ourselves in order to, be, in order to become Christians. Charles Spurgeon was a pastor back in the 19th century and he was meditating on this moment and he drew the connection between what Jesus is doing with the washing of the feet with his death on the cross. And and he makes the statement, had I been there, had I been there the moment Jesus was being crucified, I would have cried out, don't do this for me. Surely my salvation is not worth that. Surely it doesn't cost the death of the Son of God for my heart to be changed and cleansed and my sins forgiven. And Spurgeon says, if I had been there and see all that go down, I would have protested the same way Peter protests in this passage. Lord, you cannot wash my feet. Lord, you cannot die for me. Surely my situation isn't that bad. Surely I don't need that to change me. But yet that's exactly what Jesus says. He says, Peter, if I don't wash you, you don't have any part with me, right? I have to do this for you. The Son of Man came not to be served by you, but to serve you by giving my life as a ransom for many. And then Peter, in this moment, responds in a way that could be kind of predicted. Peter kind of oscillates between extremes. He's an extreme personality, moving from one side of the room to the next in a flash. And so after Jesus tells him that 
that if he doesn't wash him, he would have no part with him. Simon Peter goes to the opposite extreme. He says something weird. He says, okay, Jesus, then give me a bath, right? And Jesus is like, you're a grown man. I'm not giving you a bath. <laughs> but he says, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. But Jesus' concern in this moment isn't with a certain part of Peter's anatomy. Jesus' concern here is to instill within him the priority of being served by the Savior, that we need to be cleansed, we need to be washed, we need to be transformed by the work and the service of Jesus. And then it goes on in verse 10. It says, one who has bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. And here's where we get into some of the tension of the Christian life. Back in the first century, if you were invited over to a house to share a meal, chances you would take a bath, you would clean yourself up, you would put on some nicer clothes and you might wear, you know, you're not wearing pajamas over to somebody's house and you're going to change, you're going to take a bath. But when you go to someone's house, you're not getting in a car and driving, you're actually walking out on a dirty, dusty road. And so by the time you get from point A to point B, your feet are going to get dirty again. And so your body may be clean, but your feet are still dirty and so they need to be washed. And so Jesus is kind of drawing an analogy here. He's saying, look, you're already clean. You're already invited to the table. You're already invited into relationship with me. You you are clean, he says in John chapter 15, verse 3. He says, you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you, because I've declared things to be true of you, and my word cleanses you, but there's still some cleaning that needs to take place. You've walked from point A to point B. Your feet have gotten dirty. Now they need to be washed too. And here's where we begin to see some important theological categories that you need to have in your Christian life. Some important categories that you need to operate in when you're thinking about Jesus and you're thinking about your own life in relationship with Jesus. I think what happens here is that Jesus plants a seed that's gonna blossom all throughout the pages of the New Testament, a seed that says, you know, there's a sense in which we are as Christians when we put our faith in Jesus and we are united with him by faith in that way, that what is true of him becomes true of us. This is why in some passages you read in the New Testament, it says, hey, you are righteous. Hey, you are holy. And it declares these realities to be true of you, but you know from your own experience that many days you don't feel very righteous. And many days you don't feel very holy. There are many days when you don't seem to be very clean on a practical level. And so the New Testament would give us two categories, saying on one hand, as Christians, we are positionally clean in Christ. We are positionally righteous. We are positionally holy, that what is true of him is true of us. That comes by virtue of our union with him. But the tension of experience as we journey through a fallen world is that our feet are still getting dirty. So that we are positionally righteous, but we are practically not not so much. Because we still do things that are unholy. We still think things that are unrighteous. We still react in ways that are not true of what Christ has declared about us. And so you have this tension between you being positionally clean, yet practically you are still being cleaned. You are still being cleansed. You are still being worked on by the Savior. This is what we call sanctification. It's as we grow into the image of Christ as he continues to wash us and cleanse us and make us new. This tension is talked about in multiple places in the New Testament. I'll show you one big example because it's written by the same guy who wrote this gospel. John, the author of this gospel, is the same guy who wrote three epistles or three letters later on in the New Testament. 
creatively titled 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. And you get to 1 John chapter 1, this tension is identified. And listen to what he says there about the Christian life. This is true of everyone who identifies with Christ, everyone who's united with him by faith. If you've ever been frustrated because you're a Christian, yet you're still struggling with sin, let this passage be a comfort to you. Your feet are still getting dirty in this world. Don't get surprised by that. But at the same time, don't leave them dirty. There are things you can do to find, to get your feet clean again, so to speak. First John chapter 1, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, there it is. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Do you hear what he's saying? He says, look, your feet are still getting dirty. When that happens, come to Jesus and let him clean them. Let Jesus continue to wash your feet as you walk with him through this world. And so the gap between your positional holiness in Christ and the practical holiness that you are living out in this world, that gap is shrunk as you practice confession, as you practice humility, as you practice saying, look, I'm, my feet are still getting dirty and I need Jesus to cleanse me. I need Jesus to wash me. I need Jesus to make me new again, so to speak. What this is telling us is that no, longer how, no matter how long you walk with Jesus through this world, you will never outgrow your need for him. Your training wheels will never come off in the Christian life. You are constantly supported by the reality of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. This is why we say we never grow beyond our need for the gospel. We grow deeper into our need of the gospel because we need Jesus not only to serve us at the point of salvation, we need Jesus to serve us all the days of our lives as we walk with him through this world. So we come to him over and over and over again with dirty feet saying, Jesus, cleanse me. Jesus, wash me. Jesus, serve me. And you may think at different points, well, I wonder if Jesus ever just gets tired of me asking him for forgiveness. Does Jesus ever get tired of me confessing my sins? And the answer to that is no. Because the current of his blood that flows from the cross, it never runs dry. It never decreases. He's never going to grow weary or tired by the amount of times you come to him confessing your sins, you coming to him and humbling yourself before him. He's not going to grow tired of that. This is how he's glorified most in our lives, not because we pretend our feet aren't dirty, but we recognize our feet are, dirt, our feet are dirty, and we bring and we come to him saying, Jesus, we need you again, and 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 we need you again. We never outgrow our need of being served by the Savior, so we confess our sins. We walk in the light. We come to the table and let Jesus serve us in the ways in which he desires and even delights to serve us. It's a remarkable Savior that we have. Jesus is an incredible king to submit your life to because no other king is going to show you this kind of patience. No other savior in this life is going to be as long-suffering with you. No spouse, no child, no friend, no job. No other savior is going to serve you as frequently and as ferociously as Jesus serves you. 
Bernard of Clairvaux was an old school cat back in like the fourth century, or I can't remember the century right now, but uh, he was asked one time, what's the three most important virtues of the Christian life? And he said, humility, humility, humility. This is where it's at. This is where we live. We humble ourselves, constantly acknowledging our need to be served by the Savior. This is why we must not take a story like this and moralize it. We must take a story like this and internalize it. This is the point of John chapter 13. This is what we are pressing into. We will never grow beyond our need of being served by Jesus. Now, I want you to hear that because that's the primary application of the story. Let yourself be served. Humble yourself. Confess your sins. Humble yourself. Come to Jesus. Humble yourself. Never get over your need for Jesus. And unless you get that, you're not going to be able to move into the next section of the story because everything Jesus is about to say, it presupposes that. It assumes everything that we've just said, that Jesus is serving you, that he is your savior, that he's cleansing you. And it's in light of that you start doing some of the things that Jesus calls you to do in this passage. So you pick up verse 12. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are speaking rightly since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. So Jesus begins to talk about this example that he's setting. And notice what he says. He says, if I have washed your feet, then, and just think about what the disciples might have been thinking in that moment. Jesus says, as I have washed your feet, and they might have tried to kind of stop Jesus and say, I know what you're going to say next. As you have washed our feet, Jesus, we now need to wash your feet. That's maybe what the disciples would have expected. I'll wash your feet, you wash my feet. Reciprocity, tit for tat, quid pro quo, right? I'll do this, you do that for me. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, if, as I have washed your feet, he doesn't say, now I want you to wash mine. He says, as I have washed your feet, in light of that, now I want you to wash one another's feet. What Jesus is saying here is that grace begets grace. Grace gives birth to grace. That the ethic he's instilling in the lives of his disciples isn't an ethic of reciprocity. It isn't, I've washed your feet, now you wash my feet. I've, served, I've saved you, now you must serve me. No, Jesus says it's not, our relationship isn't based on reciprocity because you can never pay back the work that I am doing for you. But what you can do is allow my work in you to express itself in the lives of those around you. So as I have washed your feet, as I have served you, I want you to serve one another. This isn't an ethic of reciprocity. This is an ethic of grace. This is grace begetting grace because who's all in the room? Think about who the disciples are being called to serve and love. Think about Peter washing the feet now of Matthew, a former tax collector. These two enemies at one time are now in the community washing each other's feet, serving one another. Think about Judas, the one who will betray Jesus. He is in the room when Jesus says, I want you to serve one another. This is another way of Jesus saying, I want you to love your enemies. I want you to bless those who persecute you. I want you to continue to love and to serve those who mistreat you, who hurt you, who reject you, who betray you. This is an ethic of grace, not reciprocity. And so Jesus is saying, as I have washed your feet, since I'm doing this for you, 
It's not so you can pay me back. I'm doing this for you so that you can learn how to express my work in your relationships so that you can love one another through thick and thin, so that you can love even those who betray you and harm you like Judas will soon do to the whole community. This is the Savior's contagious example, saying, look, I've taken up my towel in this moment, and you are going to take up your towels in the next moment. As I have washed your feet, you now are going to wash one another's feet. See, the reason why we cherish the towel The reason why we put this image before our faith family and we identify the towel as one of our core values isn't because the towel reminds us of all the things that we must do. It's not because the towel reminds us that that we are supposed to serve one another, we're supposed to serve our city, we're supposed to serve the nations around us. Now the reason we cherish the towel, the reason we put this in front of us is because the towel reminds us of how Jesus serves us, that he served us when he went to the cross for us, that he serves us even now as we confess our sins and we come to him for forgiveness and he's washing our feet over and over and over again. The towel reminds us of what Jesus has done for us. And as we take in that reality, we'll find ourselves turning it out Not by trying to pay Jesus back, by serving him greatly, but by lovingly serving one another. As I have washed your feet, as I have served you, I want you now to serve one another. That's what Jesus says. But our service of one another isn't something that we do because we decide to turn over new leaves. It isn't isn't because we decide to start a new chapter in the way we live life in this world. The reason we serve one another is because we have been and are being served by Jesus every day over and over and over again. And so we cherish the towel because this is the rhythm that we want. We cherish the towel because the towel reminds us of the culture of grace that God creates within the church. A culture of grace that says we are going to serve one another. We are going to love one another. We are going to bless one another. We are going to help one another. We are going to be there with each other and for each other. We're going to bear one another's burdens. This is the type of culture God is creating within us, not a culture of reciprocity. Well, I joined the Set Up and Tear Down team, and, I, and not many other people has joined this team with me, and I'm tired of doing it myself, so I'm out, and I'm not going to do it anymore. No, it's not a culture of reciprocity where you expect equal pay for equal work or whatever the case may be. It's a culture of grace that says, Jesus has served me. I want to serve others. I want to take in Jesus' work, and I want to turn out Jesus' work. I want Jesus' grace to express itself in the way that I serve the church, in the way that I serve our city, in the way in which I serve the surrounding nations of the world. And so let's take up our towels. Let's think about what Jesus has done for us, and then let's let it express itself in the way that we relate to each other. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to find a culture of grace growing strong in our church? I pray that we would cherish the towel. I pray that we would look to the Jesus who entered the world not to be served, but to serve by giving his life as a ransom for many. Let us take that reality in. And let us turn it out in our relationships with each other. 
and our relationship with our city, our relationship with the world around us. I pray, God, that you would create a culture of grace within our community, one that never gets over the gospel, one that never grows beyond our need for forgiveness and cleansing and one, that never, one that's too scared to walk in the light or one that's too scared to, to be honest about what we're struggling with or how our feet may be getting dirty in a given moment. Would you give us grace to be honest? Would you give us grace to be humble? And would you give us grace to be caring as we relate to each other and serve each other and we participate in all that you are doing in the, in the life of our church and in the city that you've placed us in? God, we thank you for the towel and we pray that the towel would be embraced by every heart in this room. God, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.